0: Welcome to Life Science Marketing Radio. The podcast where marketing leaders inside and outside the sciences share their creative ideas and practical approaches to increasing your marketing ROI. Here's your host, Chris Connor. Hello everyone, welcome back. Today I'm doing something a little bit different. I'm publishing this episode on two podcasts. Life Science Marketing Radio and the San Diego Biotech Network, or SDBN Buzz. Each of those are usually different in terms of the content, but I thought this conversation would be relevant to both groups. It's also a chance to let the audience, regardless of which one you're listening to, know about the other one, because you might also find it interesting as well. Whichever one you're listening to, I appreciate you sharing part of your week with me. Now, let's jump into my interview with Owen Swift. Owen Swift is a biotech manufacturer's rep at Swift Scientific, and today we're going to talk about what that is exactly, which companies might choose this for their sales efforts, and the advantages for the rep as opposed to joining full-time sales team. Owen, thanks for joining me.
1: Thanks. It's great to be here.
0: So I'm interested. I didn't really know anything about this until I met you at an online networking event. So describe how an agent is different from... A distributor, which I think more people are probably familiar with.
1: Okay. So agent and manufacturer's rep are pretty much the same. They're pretty much synonyms in the U.S. And there's agents in a lot of other industries, electrical construction supply, a lot of industrial supply materials, things like that. And they they function in a similar way to a distributor in that they're external to the organization. They, probably the key difference is that with an agent, Customers are buying direct from the manufacturer and with a distributor, the customer is buying from the distributor who then buys from the manufacturer. Agents in this way, rather than making a profit off of a markup from reselling a product, instead get paid a percentage of the sale by the manufacturer after the sale made. And I have clients who have agents in some territories, distributors in some territories, and employees in some territories, and so it's not, I wouldn't say it's a one-size-fits-all sort of situation.
0: So that, we're going to get into that, but since you brought it up, why, for which territories, like what is how they would decide, all right, this territory has some characteristics for which agent just makes more sense.
1: Okay. So the, one of the obvious ones would be foreign, if you want to sell in foreign countries. So let's say if you're a New York based company and you have a direct sales force here in the U S you have a couple of salespeople on each coast but you you want to expand to the UK, you want to sell in the Benelux region, doing business in Europe is going to be quite different than doing business in the US. And unless you have um, and want to invest the kind of money in personnel to to manage all parts of the sort of bid process that goes on, the complex relationships and understanding how the dynamics work in markets where there's, especially Europe, where there's a lot of government involvement, it makes a lot of sense to uh, use a distributor some companies will use an agent, but I think going from U.S. to Europe, I see a lot of U.S. companies do distributors in those kinds of territories. In other places, maybe, maybe you're selling in Canada, and you're a U.S. company selling in Canada, but you don't want to hire a Canadian employee because of various regulations, government compliance, employment rules, that sort of thing. You can employ an agent to represent your company and have that you know, sort of same in-person relationship without any of the administrative overhead of having a single employee in a foreign country. But doing business from the U.S. to Canada is much more straightforward, I think, in terms of how similar the purchasing and selling systems are to the U.S.
0: Right. So, for example, tell me if I understand this right. So, if I'm a company... Of course, you go to another country, their rules about just employment in general are gonna be another thing to stay on top of. Oh yeah. And to, to do that much work, to add one person in that country may not make sense.
1: That's exactly right. Yeah.
0: So that's a great segue because there must be other advantages. So what are some of the other advantages for a manufacturer to hire or use someone like you? As opposed to, for example, a distributor or their own team?
1: I think one of the biggest advantages is the amount of control that a manufacturer has over the customer relationship. So and this is why a lot of companies prefer direct employee salespeople to distributors, because you can you can tell the employee exactly how they're going to represent your company. Your brand is always front and center, and there's no there's no ancillary concerns there. With a distributor, you lose a lot of that control. So the distributor a lot of times will have their own brand and their own catalog of products, some of which may or may not compete. And a lot of distributors I know push very hard for long-term contracts. So if you're selling scientific technical supplies and you need a distributor that has particular technical experience or particular relationships, you're gonna have a relatively narrow menu to choose from there and um, a distributor has more power in that contracting relationship. They can negotiate for longer terms, and that can make it more difficult if you ever want to go direct or if you want to change distributors. Uh, With an agent, there's much more direct lines of communication between the manufacturer and the customer. One important line there is invoicing, right? So when a manufacturer is selling direct to a customer, that purchasing relationship is already set up in both parties' computer systems the taxes are already known and straightforward and you don't have to work to set that back up. So imagine if you have a product line that's selling a hundred thousand dollars a month in Germany and you want to change distributors. If that distributor isn't already doing business with that particular customer, you're going to have some groundwork to do to make that transition happen. And the distributor that you want to get rid of isn't going to be very pleased about that. So with an agent, you avoid, you avoid some of those, some of those issues. Speaking for myself, When I work with clients, especially in a technical field like biology, I'm working pretty closely with the support staff that my clients have from a technical perspective, such that when technical concerns and questions come up, the manufacturer is the one that's providing that support and not a distributor. And so I'm more of a team member for the manufacturer in that way than a distributor would be.
0: Is it fair to say that you're the owner of the relationship, but the company owns the money or... Yes and
1: yes and no. That may be true for some product lines. I think for the product lines I represent, which tend to be more newer products and smaller companies, I it's much more of a team effort. And so while I'm a lot of times the one that's initiating and maintaining the relationship, I would say that all of my clients have the personal contact with customers that would enable them to uh, transition to a direct model if they chose to do so. And
0: so you are I guess I'm curious about your day-to-day. Like You are hunting down these potential clients for maybe small companies that are getting started and you have a view of the landscape and an idea of who might be able to use their products and how to find them.
1: Yes. So my day-to-day, so I use the word client to as a stand-in for a manufacturer. It I think right. it just describes the relationship better and I use customer to refer to the, the user in the lab that's actually buying things. So, I my approach to growing my own agency tends to be slow and steady. And so a lot of my time hunting for new business is actually hunting for new customers for for the clients I represent. And so The reason that is several of my clients are either startup companies or they are launching new products and they have new technologies and they don't have a huge existing base of business. There are agents that will specialize more in the account management side where they're managing a stream of millions of dollars of consumables on an annual basis for one particular client. But for me, I spend a lot of my time doing... Uh, prospecting work and using relationships that I already have through either past experience or that are current through other product lines, and I search for new customers for uh, the clients I represent. So, you know, I, myself, I handle 150 different accounts that we've sold things to in the past two years, and so that's a huge. You know, base of business and contacts to draw from when I'm bringing a new client on board, and I'm able to um, reach right into the rolodex and uh, find appropriate people to contact.
0: Right, and so what's the advantage for you if someone else is doing sales and they're thinking, "Oh, I didn't realize this was a possibility." What makes it work for you?
1: I would say one big thing is the stability. I mentioned before that the agents and manufacturers reps are compensated by commission after the sale is made. That's essentially a hundred percent commission is my model of working. So you might think that makes things less stable or more risky. But from my perspective, I, I'm diversified across 11 different clients and within those clients, some have multiple lines of business that are complementary. And so when a client has a problem, let's say they have a batch that has a quality failure and they can't ship a particular batch. If I'm an employee for that company and that's my, my job and I'm dependent on that product to make my goals and the company has a quality problem and can't ship products, I'm not making my goals. As an agent, if I have a client that has that problem, I still have 10 other product lines that are active and that I can sell. So I'm not dependent on any one party for my own income and for my own stability. Rather, it's it's a diversified risk. And I would say that also extends to the employment relationship overall. If you look at biotech companies and research tool companies, especially the smaller ones, even mid-sized ones, the turnover for field salespeople can be pretty high. And sometimes that's you know because of structural changes that those companies want to make in their sales force. The revenue might be shrinking, so they cut a territory, eliminate a rep. Other times it could be an acquisition where uh, the company gets rid of reps to help facilitate the acquisition or reps proactively leave. And some of it I think is just due to the demand for skilled outside salespeople and the number of new opportunities that a salesperson has available to them. As an agent, I don't have to, I guess I have more control and better ability to manage my client turnover than I would as an employee working for an employer.
0: Right. And from my perspective, and probably share this, it's just more interesting to work with a bunch of different kinds of companies, right, than... Doing the same thing all the time. Even if all your customers are different, you have many different clients as well.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I, among those companies, I can also afford to take riskier clients. So companies that are startup companies, and we don't know for a new product how well that's going to sell. And as an employee, that's a risk. You're putting all your eggs in that basket. Whereas as an agent, I can diversify out. I have some product lines that are uh, more revolutionary, and I have some product lines that are more steady and stable. And within that part of the variety of my work is also a great freedom of operation. So I get to choose where I travel and when that's always going to be dictated by business concerns, but what I'm able to do there is I'm able to take, rather than making a trip down to Philadelphia, just for one customer, one product line who might be very important and warrant that trip, I can pursue other business opportunities for different clients on that same trip.
0: Yeah. So what types of companies are a good fit for hiring someone like you and and why?
1: So for me, I think foreign companies that want to do business in the US are a good fit. The U.S. is such a huge market for research tools. Many estimates peg it at 50% of the global market when you're talking about tools that are used by pharma and biotech companies and in academic research. And if you're a foreign company, and let's say you're doing very well in Europe, um, but you don't have a presence in the U.S. yet, and you have a project or a plan to penetrate the U.S. market. Hiring a direct sales force right off the bat can be a lot of money. You're either going to have one or two people and be spending a ton of money on travel costs and inefficiencies, or you're going to have people in territories that are really too small to justify a single rep, at least in a, you're in that penetration phase. So a foreign company can hire a U.S.-based sales agent that knows the market, has the market expertise, but is able to maintain, the manufacturer is able to maintain more control over the client relationship so that as that as the US market develops for them they can then bring in more direct people or expand their presence as as their success allows. Another good type of company that's I think can make good use of sales agents is startup or young companies. So these are companies that if if you're let's say a three or four person company and you've got a research technology and you're having a contract manufactured for you, you're starting to do your own marketing, In those types of companies, a lot of times, the CEO is the first salesperson. But the CEO's duties extend way beyond sales, and there's a lot of other things for which that skill set and that knowledge base is better used. Being able to pick up a sales agent gives you not only the ability to offload it in a lower risk way, offload that work in a lower risk way, but also gives a company that market expertise of that particular sales agent.
0: Yeah, I like that market expertise. That's exactly what I was thinking about as you're talking about it. Like you're not hiring someone who knows maybe even the market for your product, but may know the market for several other products that let's be honest, any startup probably didn't even have time to think about. Right. And and those relationships and so on. So you're really giving yourself an extra advantage that way. Um So describe some different models for sales that you think make sense.
1: So as an agent, as a sales agent, I I basically offer myself as a field sales rep for hire, for contract hire. 100% commission. I assume a lot of the risk. I have the expertise. I'm in the field. I do the travel. I get the job done. Field sales is orthodoxy at a lot of research tools companies. And I think that's why the agent model has been my clients have found that appealing is because they place a high value on field sales. I actually think that the research tools segment as a group places a little too much value on outside sales. And this is really because you have field sales reps that are spending too much time doing a lot of lower skill sales work or avoiding it completely. Um, not speaking from experience here, things like you're talking
0: about CRM entry, in? well,
1: so CRM entry is a huge one for a lot of people. If you're running a sales force and you have a CRM system, you're going to have a pretty good spread of, you know, how well your salespeople are engaging with it. So CRM yeah. is one, um, traveling, making trips for a single customer and a lot of times companies don't really calculate the value uh, and the cost associated with those kinds of meetings. I'll think about situations where you have two or three field salespeople traveling to a customer. Maybe you have an account manager and a product specialist or a sales manager or someone else. Those, the costs of meetings like that just go up very quickly. So I think as companies think about what sales model they should have in their company, they should look at the, the skills and experience that's required to do different parts of that revenue generation work one way to think about it is let's do a very basic separation so you have prospecting and you have relationships those are two very different skill sets you're going to have some people that are more skilled and like the work of prospecting more and you're going to have people that like the uh, relationship-based work and the account management side better uh, and are more skilled and experienced in it and a lot of times those roles just get conflated into the one field salesperson that a company can afford or already has but if you, I think if you want to evolve your sales model, it's worth considering inside sales more. There's a lot of work, especially on the prospecting side, that can be done more efficiently and at a lower cost than uh, a field salesperson would do. And the field salespeople a lot of times don't really want to do that work. There's always different mentalities among field salespeople, and I don't want to overgeneralize. But if sure. you have, if you're a small company and you have four territories across the U.S., and you have outside salespeople, whether they're agents or whether they're employees, and you want to, you know, add a human resource to that team, I think you should consider adding an inside salesperson. Get somebody that can take on prospecting tasks across the country from an inside position and make the outside salespeople more effective.
0: Got it. And then... Let's talk about how companies grow, because obviously everything we've talked about here, we're talking a lot about foreign country or foreign companies trying to penetrate, you know, a new market or small companies already in place, trying to do essentially the same thing and get started, but they're going to grow at some point. So how do you see those sales models evolving along the growth path of a company?
1: How I see them evolving and how I think they actually should evolve are perhaps (laughs) different (laughs) observations
0: there. I'd love to hear both.
1: (laughs) So I'm going to generalize again and I'm going to say what I usually see is I usually see companies reach the point of between 5 and 10 employees and then they think about, okay, we need to hire somebody that's going to take responsibility for sales. And that person typically is going to have previous experience as, as a sales manager, he might be, he'll probably come in at a vice president level for example, he's gonna gray hair long in the teeth. Um, Somebody that doesn't need to be told how to sell things because they've been doing it their whole lives. If that person is coming from a company like Perkin Elmer or Thermo Fisher, and not to pick on those companies, but they're gonna bring a lot of that orthodoxy with them and their objective I think is going to be, and often proves to be that, okay, we want to we want to build a direct sales force. We want an agent in the Northeast, Mid-Atlantic, Southeast, Northwest, San Francisco, San Diego, and plus one guy in the middle that can handle all that other stuff. And I think a better way of doing it might be to look at, okay, that so that's a, what I just described as like a million dollar to $2 million sales in cost. A better way to look at it is, okay, how can we scale up our our sales force and the human resources devoted to sales in a way that sort of matches the revenue that sales force is able to generate because there's a lag, of course. You have to invest in sales and you don't want to over-invest is what I'm saying. You don't want to invest at a faster pace than your revenue is able to grow. One way, of, of course, is you can go the direct route. Another way is to go the agent route. I think the agent route is appealing if you, again, you don't know what the potential for your product is going to be in particular markets. Agents, you can think of them as part-time, And if you have an agent, you you can then afford to have an agent that's part-time in the Northeast, the Mid-Atlantic, and the Southeast at a fraction of the cost of a direct sales force. Those agents are typically going to be professional, experienced in their market, so forth. And then as you grow, and if your goal is indeed to have a direct sales force where everybody that's on the team is an employee, and that's completely acceptable. If that's your goal, and if that's what makes sense for your business, you can replace agents as, they, as natural attrition takes place with direct salespeople. I know several companies that have both agents and direct salespeople on the on the force together, and for the most part, we play pretty nice with each other. I think there's additional advantages to that as the agents, if they're 100% commissioned and you have direct salespeople at the same time that are getting paid a base, each side can help keep each other honest in a way. So I think for each company, it's different, and if that company also wants to expand abroad, and if expanding abroad is something that they want to do at an early phase, they want to launch in the US, they want to launch in Europe, they want to launch in Asia at the same time initially, you're going to have have a combination of an inside person to manage agents and distributors, agents domestically, and perhaps distributors internationally. And then as revenue grows in each market, let's say sales grow faster in Europe than they do in the US, and you have distributors in Europe, you can begin to rotate those out.
0: Nice. So what I really like about this conversation is I feel like I understand marketing reasonably well. I, I'll i admit everybody knows I don't know a lot about sales, but I find it really interesting and just understanding the cost of sales, because I'm always thinking those guys are making the money. They're feeding all of us to a degree. But those meetings that you mentioned, for example, to send three people somewhere to talk to a single customer. And I just imagine because I know what those things cost and the price of an instrument, for example, and how that must eat into the margin because it's probably not just one meeting like that. And I go, wow, man, that's a huge fraction of the cost of a sale, it seems to me. Maybe it's not as big as I think it is. But um, so to have someone like you where you're paying just, we only pay once it's sold, um, and there's no expense up to that point.
1: Yeah, so that's a huge selling point for me. I don't get paid until I'm successful for the most part and I like to offer that because I'm relatively confident in success and the product lines I pick up. Sometimes I will get a product line that's extremely challenging but again I'm diversified there. I think if you're looking at the commission only as independent from agent versus employee because you can have employees of course that are 100% commission. Ask any car salesperson. You can manage your your sales force that way if they're employees. It's just I think you have to have a different mindset to doing it. I don't think that works out as well for the employee because the employee again has all their apples in that one basket. Shifting more of the cost to a you know variable component like commission makes a lot of sense for early-stage companies. It's harder to attract people like that though. If you're getting the experienced sales manager from PerkinElmer or Thermo Fisher they're going to have salary requirements that might, if you wanted to convert what they had been getting as sure money into a variable component, they're gonna want a pretty big portion of that. And I'll point out that agents can be ex- expensive too. For each of my clients, we negotiate a uh, commission rate up front and that's the the client has certain expectations about what revenue is possible, I have certain expectations about what revenue is possible, and sometimes we get pleasantly surprised by seven-figure orders. And if those orders weren't anticipated when the contract was created, then you have an obligation to pay that can create quite a bit of discomfort for the manufacturer and in the short term make the agent quite happy, but long term those things aren't good for an agent as well because if you're the value that you present to the client that holds your contract, if that isn't always front and center in your mind, you're going to have a hard time maintaining long-term relationships because at the end of the day, it comes down to dollars. How much, what percentage do we have to pay to generate the revenue, whether it's employees, distributors, or agents, and how can we strategically manage that?
0: Yeah. So how does, I have one last question. So how does someone get started as an agent and that in the context of? how did you get your experience to where, because you can't, let's say it's me and I'm going out and pretend I know something. I don't have multiple product lines to offer. Like when I'm pulling on my first client, I must, is the most natural thing for me to have come from a company where I know one and I just say, I'm gonna go do this in this area. And then because I know the people in the labs are buying all kinds of other things and I have a chemistry background or whatever, I can. Confidently sell those other things and bring on new clients to sell to the customers I know. I, yeah. I'm just trying to, yeah. How do you get from zero to where you are?
1: So, well, there's how I did it and then how I would do it if I were to do it again. So, okay. <laughs> for me, it was, it, I didn't really know people in the research tool space that were independent agents. I knew it was a business model that worked in other other industries, but I didn't really have anybody to turn to in terms of a role model or a mentor. That came later. And so my advice would be find somebody who is an agent and talk to them about what it is that you like to do. What do you like about your work? Do you like the prospecting side or do you like the relationship side? Because there's different ways that you can set up an agency that focuses on the things that you like. What you don't want to do is start an agency and take the first comers. (laughs) Um, That can be extremely dangerous. I think I got lucky with the initial clients that I got and if I were to do it again I would place even more focus on choosing the right group of customers. I think if you're, an, if you're a salesperson right now and having your own agency sounds appealing, I would say your first step is to write a business plan. And it, it'll take you probably six to nine months to get four, four contracts in place. But that's the sort of thing that you could actually start while you're still employed. You could be working your day job. And at the same time, while you're at that trade show, you can look around and while well, you used to be able, pre-COVID, mm-hmm to look around and say, okay, these technologies look really interesting, there's a startup company over there and they have this really interesting, let's say, imaging technology. You go over and you talk to them and you're like, okay, what are you doing for, who are your salespeople? Are you looking to hire salespeople? Um, And they say, no, we're in an early stage and we haven't really thought about that yet. And they're thinking that you're looking for employment. That's the sort of company that you can start a discussion with and say, hey, six months from now, nine months from now, I'm going to be starting my own sales agency and I'm looking for clients just like you that need uh, sales representation on a contract commission only basis. I guarantee you'll have a meeting with them at least to discuss that possibility. So that's how you start to set up a portfolio of clients. And you want to choose clients that one, you have an affinity for the product and you believe it can be successful in the market. If it fits into your experience space, let's say you're You've done a lot of work in uh, selling to cancer researchers. Okay, that's a natural place for you to start, and where you can start to leverage your existing uh, customer contact base. And yeah, I think with those combined, that's how you start to structure start to structure an agency. And and most of what your agency looks like three years later is just going to be determined by your experience. So you, you can't really plan too far in advance, but I think the first steps that you take seeking mentorship and seeking the right clients and working, uh, working on that plan while you're still employed are the, really the keys.
0: Nice. I, I like that. I didn't even think about that whole thing at the trade show, which makes total sense, but the aspect of having a conversation with someone saying that I'm not looking to start selling for you while I still have a full time job, but right. here's my plan. Right. Let's start having conversations so we can start up together in six to nine months. So
1: Yeah, I think that's the most ethical way of doing it. And yeah. it also, because when I started my agency, I didn't start on day one with a fistful of clients. I started with zero clients. And then I think it was two months later, I got my first client, uh, another month to get the second one. And now what I find is when I'm screening potential clients and discussing with them, it takes about six months, sometimes nine months to get a contract in place.
0: Wow. Yeah, that's that's good information. So, Owen Swift, this has been really interesting to me. How can people find out more about you? Like where should we send them if they're interested?
1: Well, you can look me up on LinkedIn. I spend a lot of time on LinkedIn. My website, swiftside.com tells you a little bit about my agency. And I'm always happy to consult with manufacturers that want to know more or salespeople that are thinking about agency and having their own agency as a career future.
0: All right, I will put links to your LinkedIn page and your website in the show notes for anybody who's interested. And thank you once again for sharing all this experience with us. It's been my pleasure, Chris. I hope that whether you are a marketer or a biotech leader, scientist, whatever, that you got some useful information out of that. I learned a lot. I'm particularly a fan of showing people how they can take more control over their careers, whether it's inside a company or out. And this is one good example. Hey, whichever podcast you're listening to, I hope you'll tell some of your colleagues about it. If you find value in it, they most likely will also. Then you can talk about the episodes and maybe come up with new ideas you can put to work. Then check out the other podcast, whether it's Life Science Marketing Radio or the SDBN Buzz. Thanks for listening. I'll be back soon with another episode on both podcasts. Bye-bye.